Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I'm Jamie Mize. Today is the third episode of our inaugural season, Histories, Mysteries, and True Crimes. As the title suggests, this season we will be exploring historic mysteries and true crime stories from the past. Our third episode examines one of history's greatest mysteries, the fate of the princes in the tower. In April 1483, Edward IV, King of England, died unexpectedly, making his 12-year-old son, Edward, King Edward V. Due to Edward's young age, his uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was made Edward's protector. But soon, Richard took a series of steps that resulted in Edward's deposition and his ascension to the throne as Richard III. In addition to seizing the throne, Richard III placed Edward and his brother Richard, Duke of York, in the Tower of London. This tale is one of history's greatest mysteries because after the summer of 1483, the brothers were never seen again. To learn about the explanations for the prince's fate and to untangle this story of multiple Edwards and Richards, I spoke with Dr. Charles Beam. Dr. Beam is a professor of British history at UNCP. Dr. Beam's publications include The Lioness Roared, The Problems of Female Rule in English History, The Royal Minorities of Medieval and Early Modern England, The Foreign Relations of Elizabeth I, The Name of a Queen, William Fleetwood's Itinerarium at Windsor, The Man Behind the Queen, Male Consorts in History, and Queenship in Early Modern Europe. All right. Thank you, Dr. Beam, for talking to me today about the princes in the tower. So first things first, who are the princes and why are they in a tower? (laughs) Well, um, first of all, the tower is not actually a tower. It is actually a a fortress and a palace that was uh, originally built by uh, William the Conqueror and added on by subsequent monarchs. it is has a reputation in in English history, of course, as a as a prison for very famous people who go there uh, usually to await their deaths, such as say Anne Boleyn, the the second wife of, of Henry VIII. So it was a prison, it was a palace, um, and it was um, a, a place where uh, where the princes could be put <laughs> and to keep them safe. Now, the princes themselves are actually uh, King Edward V of England and his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York. They were the sons of King Edward IV of England, who reigned from uh, 1461 to, to 1483. And he was uh, a, a king of the House of York and a major combatant in, in, a, in a dynastic struggle uh, known as popularly as, as the Wars of the Roses. And uh, Edward had married a, a woman from the lower nobility, uh, which eventually sort of created dissensions within his court. And so when Edward died prematurely at the age of 42 in April of 1483, his eldest son and heir was only 12 years old, which meant that the reign would be a minority reign, that is, that that someone or a group of people would have to rule for him. And there actually had been four previous royal minorities in English history going back to the 13th century. 
So Edward had appointed his younger surviving brother, Richard, Duke of York, to be the Lord Protector uh, during the minority reign of his son. And this, of course, had a deep precedent in English history. However, uh, Edward's court was riddled with faction. Uh, One faction was led by his queen, Elizabeth Woodville. Uh, She had two sons by a previous marriage and a host of daughters also uh, with Edward IV. And she was apprehensive about Richard uh, being protector. And so after the death, when Richard was actually up in, uh, in the north of England, in York, as he made his way southward and uh, young, uh, the young Edward V, who had been Prince of Wales, he was also making his journey from Wales to London. Uh, it, it came to Richard's attention that the Queen in London was trying to derail his, uh, his uh, protectorship. So Richard decided to take matters into his own hands, and he took the young king custody when they met on the road to London. And so when he arrived in London with the young king, uh, the queen, after failing to raise an army to to fight Richard, took refuge uh, in Westminster Abbey with her daughters and her younger son, Richard, Duke of York. Richard assumes the protectorship, but realizes over the course of the next few weeks that that he is facing considerable headwinds uh, from various factions at court. And inevitably, he came to believe that his own safety could only be assured by the deposition of the young king, uh, which happens at the end of June 1483. So, Uh, Once Richard seizes the throne and becomes King Richard III, uh, the princes uh, were in the Tower of London uh, in residence. They weren't prisoners. They were simply in residence. They simply disappeared from sight and were not seen again. Okay. So... If I'm understanding things correctly, historically, most people have assumed that Richard had something to do with their disappearance, if we're if we want to call it that. I think isn't a common assumption that he had them killed? It is. Um, it is a common assumption. Um, and I, I would I, I like the point that you made. I would still call it a disappearance um, okay. because. There is some forensic evidence, actually, and we can sort of come back to that later. There are some bones that were found. I don't know if we're ready to talk about that just yet. Um, We can come back to that if you want to. Absolutely. So what is it about Richard? I mean, apart from the fact that he basically kind of takes over, right, has his nephew deposed so that he can become king. Is there anything else apart? in his character or in his previous dealings with individuals that would explain why people would assume that he would kind of do something so dastardly as be involved in their, uh, these two young children's disappearance? Well, actually, I think most contemporaries that would have known Richard would have thought that what happened, if he did, in fact, take out the young princess, was totally against his character. He actually had been a very loyal, uh, loyal and, and brave, courageous you know, servant to his brother in, in peace and war and in government. 
and as and Edward the Fourth trusted his his younger brother, uh, I think more than any other man during his reign, and so he was someone whose whose behavior was very much unimpeachable. In fact, much of the opinion really that is created about Richard only is is comes about after his death when Shakespeare uh, the well. Actually, beginning with the Tudors themselves, it was definitely in their interest to paint Richard's character as black as possible. And so, I mean, in many ways, you know, Richard suffered, you know, a, a blackening of character that that perhaps, you know, few kings in English history have ever had to endure. But if we want to contextualize Richard, this was a very, very brutal age. Uh, and it was an age where. Uh, under Henry VI, you know, royal royal uh, authority had been undermined, and and the result was the result of very many over mighty subjects, and, and inevitably, you know, Richard has to had dealt with all of these over mighty subjects, you know, helping his brother through his reign. Also, Richard was very hard boiled. He saw things, I think, exactly as they are, and. He had to make a call. Ultimately, you know, his future security rested in him being the king. Murdering princes, I don't think, you know, would have helped him at all. I want to I do want to explore that for sure. But I, I wanted to ask you a quick question about how Richard justified essentially, you know, taking the kingship and and removing that position from his his nephew because surely he couldn't have just said everybody guess what i've decided it's better for me that i'm king so let's make that happen well there was actually an entirely legal explanation for all of this and it was sort of you know into richard's protectorship that it suddenly came to light that edward the fourth before he had married elizabeth woodville had entered a pre-contract with another woman, supposed Elizabeth Talbot, um, which meant that if he had, in fact, had entered a pre-contract with another woman, that meant that his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was invalid in canon law, making their children illegitimate. So the color for this act of usurpation was the idea that Edward's children were illegitimate and unfit to inherit the throne. That meant that Richard was Edward IV's true legitimate heir. I know we probably can't say for sure, but given all the other contextual information that we have about Richard, do you think that he believed it? Or was it a, a convenient... Oh, no. Oh, no. It, it was. It was... Just he had to have some kind of legal explanation for what he was doing. In fact, his first parliament later enshrines it, you know, in a parliamentary statute, which, of course, is repealed once Henry VII becomes king in, in the next reign. Because he marries one of the daughters of Edward IV. So he was interested in marrying a daughter with undoubted legitimacy. Very good. So Richard is number one suspect. You've you've mentioned the fact that it was in the the Tudor's interest to blacken Richard, um, and I think a lot of people are uh, familiar, certainly with Shakespeare's 
play um, in which, you know, Richard is is cast in a particular light. But are there other suspects or is everybody convinced that Richard is is the only one? Well, there is a few suspects. One is the Duke of Buckingham, Edward Stafford. And he had been, his family had been Lancastrian. In fact, his his father had been killed in one of the battles of the Wars of the Roses. And he had been forced to marry one of the sisters of Elizabeth Woodville. So uh, when Richard became protector, Buckingham offered his services uh, and Richard took him up on that. And so Buckingham was very much his right-hand man during the usurpation. But three months later, Buckingham led a rebellion against Richard. Why? We're not sure. Perhaps if the princess had died in the tower and he knew that, then he would be that logical Lancastrian candidate. He did have the blood of the Lancastrians flowing in his veins. And so um, that actually got his son in trouble with with Henry VIII, who uh, eventually has his son uh, executed for his supposed uh, touting of his of his royal Plantagenet blood. So is it uh, possible that Buckingham could have been acting for on behalf of Richard? Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, that is just mere speculation. We have no idea why Buckingham rebelled. And in fact, as soon as as soon as he's caught, I mean, Richard has his head cut off. And so we never really got to hear his side of the story. But I know you haven't asked this question yet, but, you know, the fact remains is that why if if the princess had been killed, why Richard never got in front of that as previous usurping kings had done in the past, for instance, after the the death of Edward II, uh, of a very unnatural death. Of course, his body was on display. So everyone would know that he was dead, even though the English people knew he had been murdered. It was the same with the deposition of Richard II at the end of the 14th century. Richard died in captivity. His body was displayed. So everyone would know he was dead, even though everyone sort of knew his successor, Henry IV, had been that. If the princes had died, it would have been probably to Richard's benefit to get in front of that, to have their, their bodies displayed and, and move on. Why that never happened, you know, is, is to me the, been the really big inexplicable question, which means that following the Battle of Bosworth, when Henry Tudor vanquishes Richard and Richard dies on the battlefield, when Henry Tudor makes his way back to London, if he found those two princes in the tower, uh, that would have been very inconvenient for his new kingship. There is actually a story of a man named James Terrell, who supposedly, supposedly confessed to murdering the princes. He later found great favor under Henry VII, but then later on in his reign, he is convicted of treason and beheaded. That, of course, is a very, very interesting story. Also, lots of holes in it. But again, to me, you know, if they had died, why not get in front of it? And again, that is an idea that really, you know, you know, really hasn't really been addressed all that much. But in many ways, that would have been in keeping with previous precedent. Do you not think it's different, though, because these are 
these are young boys. Surely people would have been horrified. I, I, I Certainly they were, absolutely. But, you know, again, I, I would say that, you know, if Richard, you know, was serious about consolidating his rule, you know, when if they had died, it, that it would have had to have come out sooner or later. He would have had to explain it at some point, right? I mean, say he hadn't died at Bosworth. You know, would the whole country have just said, well, I guess they just disappeared and they never, you know, I just don't see that kind of scenario happen. If Richard, in fact, lived and gone on to a long reign, he would have had to explain what happened to those princes. And in his two-year reign, he never did that. So this brings up a, a good point, some strange behavior. So given what was typically done, it's strange that there was no confirmation. You know, if Richard had, in fact, killed the princes, that their bodies weren't shown to people so that people knew that that claim to the throne was no longer. I would like to bring up one more point also is that Henry VII, when he became king, he made no effort to, to start any kind of investigation to see what happened to the princes. He was, in effect, happy to let the princes lie wherever they were. And whether he knew that they were dead and whether he knew where they were buried, he took that to his grave with him also. Well, I mean, it probably wouldn't have done him any good to have found them, given the shakiness of his claim. Right. I mean, his. But I mean, if he had the bodies, he could say, look what Richard did. And that would just have been even more helpful in the process of blackening Richard's character. Oh, I see what you're saying. OK. In fact, it's not until Thomas More, really in the second decade of the 16th century, actually writes a story about Richard murdering the princes. That's the first time the story comes up. Scholars are so very much on the fence about, you know, what was Moore's intention in doing this? And I tend to follow that school that Moore was much more writing a work of an advice manual for, for princes in that sense, you know, creating the model of the ultimate wicked king for Henry, the young Henry VIII to, to have a model for what he should not do. And so in many ways, you know, if you read Utopia, you know that Moore had a, a, a very dry sense of humor also. I, I've always been of the school that it, much of this uh, Moore simply invented to make a model of, of a wicked king. And again, it proves so persuasive that as writers and historians over the course of the 16th century, Edward Hall in his work, Raphael Hollinshed in that work, these were the works that Shakespeare read. And of course, Shakespeare embellishes even more to create that monster. So again, we have to always be clear about the fact that the idea of the monster was only created after Richard was dead. No one was saying he was a monster when he was alive. The Woodvilles... The, right. the maternal relatives of the princes never come out and say anything against Richard. Is, is that correct? Well, there aren't actually too many of them left. I mean, the queen's brother, Anthony Woodville, and her actually her younger uh, son by her first marriage, Richard has them executed soon after he becomes king. Uh, she has her daughters. Um, the rest of her family uh, is not around, but her behavior is is very, very strange. I mean, after Richard takes the throne, 
she makes a deal with Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry Tudor, uh, that, that Henry should marry uh, her eldest daughter, Elizabeth, and that they sh- if he was able to take the throne. But a year later, uh, after being in the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey all this time, Elizabeth Woodville agrees to leave uh, the Abbey and allow her daughters to go to Richard's court. Again, what a woman who knew absolutely that this man had murdered her young sons uh, have anything to do with him. She, in fact, seemed to have made her peace with Richard. And in the subsequent reign of Henry VII, she really did not get along with him at all. In fact, she actually lent her support to, to one of the pretenders against Henry's throne at a certain point, which got her shut up in an abbey. Uh, for the for the remainder of her life, um, so she is. She comes down to us as a very very hard boiled character. Um, uh, she was a pretty ruthless woman, and this was a very very ruthless age. And and you know again, her behavior just defies a logical pattern at all. Richard did kill one of her sons, though for sure. Yes, he? yes, he did. Yes, he did. Her her younger son Richard Gray by her first husband. All right, so we've talked about Elizabeth Woodville, but how in the immediate time around these events, how are people responding? So we've kind of talked about historians are are divided on their opinions about this stuff, but the contemporaries, Richard's contemporaries, what are they saying when all of a sudden the, the princes disappear? The problem is we have very little commentary, precious little commentary. There are basically two primary sources uh, that we rely on for this particular episode. You know, the period of the death of Edward IV to the usurpation and the beginning of Richard's reign, which is really a span of just about three or four months. Um, uh, Dominic Mancini's account, and then there's the the, the Chronicle of the Croyland Chronicle also. And again, um, Richard, you know, doesn't come off very bad in these works at all, especially uh, in many ways. It's the queen and her family that sort of, you know, get the reputation as really wanting to really upset the status quo. Uh, And the queen was trying to do that. So have I answered that question? I think so. So essentially, we don't know so much about what people really thought at the time. Again, and so, you know, filling in the gaps, all of us historians that have looked at this period of time, you know, all all of us, we 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 just have to get to that point where we make the kinds of of speculations best fit the evidence that we have. You've indicated that there's a likelihood that, in fact, they didn't die, and historical events indicate that there were people that thought that they didn't die, and the fact that there were a number of of people, at least one. Right, that was yes. came from Ireland and suggested that. Yes, could, I'm sorry, I'm fuzzy about all of the details. Would you mind telling us about that? Well, and, and this is where it comes in. I mean, if if the princess had died in the tower and they'd been buried in the tower, and if Henry the Seventh knew about that, he should have made that public. Because if the princess had died and their bodies were laid out, that would have made it impossible for these pretenders to come up, right? Because they're pretending to be the young king. They're pretending to be the younger prince, you know, Duke of York. And so 
they can make that claim because their deaths have never been substantiated. So, you know, Henry VII, you know, his actions are rather his action, his inactions rather early in the reign. You know, to me, uh, they, they're, they're highly questionable. Who was the young man that arrived from Ireland with the... His name was Lambert Simnel. And, and Elizabeth Woodville actually supported him. <laughs> and was he, he claiming to be Edward or Richard? He was claiming to be the younger son. Richard. Yeah. What happened? Um, he got captured and then uh, Henry VII made him uh, work in his kitchen. Well, I guess it, at least he wasn't killed. Right. Okay. So um, you mentioned... You mentioned the bones. So we don't, we didn't have a body. It wasn't put on display, but you did mention that there are some bones. So So, tell, tell us about the bones. Okay. So in the 1670s, during the reign of the Stuart King Charles II, when renovations were being done in the tower, um, bones were found in a staircase. Now, in Moore's account, the bodies are buried under a staircase. So that's uh, an interesting point right there. And so Charles II had the bones interred in an urn that's on display in Westminster Abbey, which of course is a necropolis for for English kings and queens. In 1933, uh, the, the British crown allowed the bones to be examined and according to the sort of the kind of forensic knowledge that it existed back then, it was determined that they were two children age 12, perhaps age 12 and 10, but the sex could not be determined. And the crown has not seen fit to, uh, to allow the bones uh, to be examined again. Now, This is interesting because Richard, after the Battle of Bosworth and his own untimely death, his burial place had been lost for centuries until it was found uh, some years ago under a parking lot in the city of Leicester. And uh, they suspected that it was him and DNA evidence was able to to conclude that it was, in fact, uh, Richard III. Now, the same thing could be done with those bones in the tower. I have no explanation for why that's never been performed. But so in many ways, it's I, I suppose it's the official position of the English crown that these are, in fact, the bones of, of young Edward V and his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York. So what do you think? OK, I think that. We don't know what happened to the princes and we don't know what happened to their bodies. And the people, whoever did it, whether it was Richard, whether it was Henry VII, they somehow saw it in their interests to keep their deaths and the, and the place of their burials a secret. And again, it would be so nice if we could get that kind of conclusive evidence on those bones uh, that are in Westminster Abbey. I don't really see that happening. Um, I think the Beatles will get back together first. So um, I, I am not sitting on the fence when I say that I really positively have no idea. <laughs> I mean, to me, again, and I come back to the point that if they had died 
while Richard was king, it was in his interest to, to make public their deaths. That would have been much more in his interest than to hide it. Even if it was uh, what explained away as, as something else, some sort of sickness or something. Exactly. And I think that, you know, you know, obviously when, when, when it's announced that poor Henry VI had died of pure melancholy and displeasure, <laughs> that he had in fact died an unnatural death. Um, and certainly, you know, he could have still, I mean, no one, I think, really believed, for instance, the story that, 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 that Edward had a pre-contract with a woman before Elizabeth Woodville. It just was that kind of legalistic thing to justify what he did. He could have had those bodies displayed and said, hey, they died of the sweating sickness, you know, and, and we're so sorry that they're dead. And he could have just moved on. So the fact that the, that the princes were hidden uh, during his reign suggests to me, again, that they were, in fact, alive during Richard's reign. What was the benefit uh, to him to keep them alive? Well, there was actually no benefit at all. In fact, if they had died a natural death, that would have been a great relief to him, I suppose. And and but they apparently they didn't, because if they had, I think that he would have sort of got in front of that. Um, I, I've been thinking about this, you know, for the entire time since you first asked me to sit down to do this podcast. And I, I, I've spent much time going over my evidence and then thinking about my usual suspects. And and so uh, my story that I've given to you right now in this podcast is the one I'm sticking with. Well, would it be a conspiracy theory to ask if, you know, Henry did it? Or one of the uh, possibilities that I've heard before is that Margaret Beaufort was responsible. So what if, what if the princes were alive during Richard's reign? Henry shows up, sees that they're still alive. Uh, His claim, right, if I'm understanding things correctly, hinges very much on his marriage to Elizabeth. Right. Well, yes. Well, Henry, Henry was very careful to make sure that his claim to the throne uh, was vested in him alone. And he he waits a while to crown her queen. Right. Because of that. In fact, after the first after the birth of their first child. So you don't think he killed them then? I think that if they were alive and when he shows up in London, that he would have had them killed. I do. Okay. But we don't have any evidence for that. We don't have any evidence for that. It's it's a black hole in history, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is. And and I mean, this is something that has been discussed in this kind of way for centuries, for centuries. And, you know, historians, you know, Tudor and Yorkist historians just love to do is, is make these kinds of speculations, you know. Why didn't Queen Elizabeth ever marry? You know, mm-hmm. those 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 questions, we still go round and round and round and round. Is there anything else that we need to know about the princes, Richard III, the Tower of London, the Tudors? I just want to say that Richard, for the most part, especially for the age in which he lived, led a pretty exemplary life uh, in terms of the kind of responsibilities that he sh- that he shouldered and the loyalty that he had showed his brother and that unique situation that arose upon his brother's death uh, was one in which 
I don't think he had really any taste for. And I do think that ultimately he saw that the preservation of his own life, not just his career, but his own life was, was essential uh, for him uh, in, in, in seizing the throne as he did. I know it was not something that he took lightly. And I don't think he spent years plotting that as Shakespeare would, of course, have us believe, you know, when we watch his play. Uh, this was a, a set of unprecedented circumstances and the queen spun out of control. And so Richard had, you know, an array of very, not so very good choices. And he, you know, ultimately, you know, he chose to save himself. But it was also a period of time where the kind of consensus that had come together in earlier royal minorities, especially in the previous one of Henry VI, was was completely absent. Uh, the factions were at each other's throats and, you know, Richard could not reconcile them. And ultimately, he had to find a way, you know, to to save himself as well as to to govern the kingdom. Very good. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Beam, I so appreciate your time today and telling us about what is arguably history's greatest mystery, the princes in the tower. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will explore a case of arson in 20th century China. Speak with you soon. (laughs) 